welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. My guest today is none other than Anthony Scaramucci, managing partner and founder of Skybridge, a $10 billion global alternative investments firm specializing in a wide array of investment strategies, including fund of hedge funds products, hedge fund advisory solutions, and a Bitcoin dedicated fund. In 2017, Anthony also served as White House Communications Director under President Trump, a role which was famously short-lived. In this entertaining episode, we discuss Anthony's trajectory and his entrepreneurial spirit, and why he decided to leave big finance and launch his own firm, the importance of showing up and putting all your time and energy into your business as a founder, all things Bitcoin, and why he's so bullish on it and decided to launch a dedicated Bitcoin fund and strategy at Skybridge, reflections on his short stint at the White House and what he learned from this experience, resourcefulness and flexibility, and why these are some of the most important lessons from his entrepreneurial career, advice for the younger generation, and a whole lot more. And now, I hope you enjoyed this great interview with Anthony Scaramucci. All right, Anthony. Well, welcome and thank you for joining us on the Wharton Fintech Podcast. How are you today? I'm doing terrific. Thanks for having me. It's a lot of fun for me. Yeah, no, we're excited to have you joining. I'm guessing all the way from Long Island. Yes, I'm here in Manhasset in my home office. Uh, we return to work full time May 4th. I'm sorry, May 3rd, which is the Monday. And I'm very excited about that. Fantastic. Well, Anthony, we'd love to hear a bit about your background and, and your story, right? I know you're originally from Long Island, um, and that's, you know, you're, so you're back home. But tell us about the journey over the last few years. Well, I have the classic American story, thank God. You know, my father was a blue-collar uh, worker. I ended up going to a public uh, high school, and then I went to Tufts University and then Harvard Law School. And I worked at Goldman Sachs for about seven years. And then I went from Goldman Sachs into my own company. When I was 32 years old, I started my first company. And then after that, I went to, uh, it actually became Lehman Brothers. So I sold my first company when I was 37 years old to a company called Newberger Berman. And Newberger Berman was then bought by Lehman Brothers. And so I spent a few years there. And then when I was 41, I started Skybridge. And so 16 years later, less my 11-day disaster in the White House, 16 years later, I've been at Skybridge and building that firm. It's $9 billion in assets under management and growing quite nicely. Great. And I'll save the questions of the 11-day period for a little bit later. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about it. It's all good fun. Great, great. So let's talk about Skybridge, right? I mean, $9 billion is not small. But you started obviously at zero. How did you approach building this step-by-step and fundraising, hiring a team and, and all that? So it started with myself and uh, a friend of mine, Jason Wright, who's still what the firm, and an assistant. And so there were three of us when we started. And I had a couple of families that I was quite close to. I remember I was 40 at the time, so I had 16 years of experience working. And so I think I availed those 16 years to marshal the resources and the network. And so there were probably six families that helped me get it started. And then Lehman Brothers, which was my employer, 
gave me $10 million of their balance sheet capital. I got $10 million of balance sheet capital from Merrill Lynch. And so it was a total of $20 million. Plus there were two families that came in for 25 million each. Before you know it, I had a $300 million fund that I raised. And so the Skybridge first fund was $300 million. We then did an add-on fund of about $150 million in 2008, July. And that was an interesting period of time because the markets were going down. Bear Stearns had already had its debacle in March. And by September, we were having a real problem in the markets. The markets were shaking. And you saw the debacle with Lehman Brothers, my old firm. It was sad for me to see that. And here's what I would say to young entrepreneurs. If you'd said to me when I started Skybridge, one of the most successful investment banks in the history of the United States was going to go bankrupt in the global financial crisis, I would have told you there's no way that that was going to happen. And if you said to me that uh, Skybridge was going to survive the financial crisis at the same time that Lehman Brothers was going to go out of business, I said, whoa, I mean, that's a pretty big uh, dichotomy there. So it was one of those uh, weird things that happened. But again, super exciting because I was able to buy the Citibank alternative investment management business. They had to sell because they were under siege. They had taken money from the federal government through the TARP program, and they had to sell their non-core assets. And so I stepped in and bought that. And that was a contrarian thing to do. But the market started to recover, and I owned that asset, and that asset benefited us well. Unfortunately, in March of 2020, we had a bad month, uh, but we've recovered now nicely. We're well through our high watermark 12 months later. So the moral of the story is you got to show up. You have to be present. You have to put your energy and your time into your business, and you got to be a little lucky. But of course, you're creating a lot of your own luck through your hard work. So, Anthony, I see a Bitcoin book right behind you. Yeah, this is one of my favorites. I recommend this to everybody. This is, uh, was written by Dominic Frisby. He is a uh, financial journalist, uh, UK-based. This book, interestingly enough, was written in 2014. I always recommend it because he predicted a lot of the things that happened. And what I love about that book is it really does explain what Bitcoin is, why it's working, why it's scaling, or why the network effect is taking place for Bitcoin as it has for things like Amazon and Google and Facebook. Yeah, that's interesting. So you started in Skyridge with more traditional assets and traditional investments. Correct. But maybe talk to us about this new step that you've taken, right? And, and you're trying to launch a Bitcoin ETF, if I'm not mistaken. You have your crypto initiative. No, first of all, why go into this space and then tell us a little bit about how you were thinking about it? Well, listen, I think this space represents a new frontier for people. I think that uh, assets being what they are are going to continue to go up in terms of fiat currency. But weirdly, I think they are going to be flat or stable in terms of Bitcoin. So Bitcoin as a fiat currency feels like it's being produced at a tremendous amount. We have 26% more dollars in circulation right now than we did five months ago. So asset prices are going up based in dollar terms. But if you notice, Bitcoin is tracing. It's going up alongside of the dollar. And so for me, I think it's very important for our clients to own a piece of Bitcoin. I do believe that it is a store of value now. It is a collector's item in some ways. It's only 
21 million coins produced, but there's really only 17 or 18 that are in circulation as a result of the loss of these coins through poor storage. And it's my prediction that uh, they will track gold eventually. And so they're $50,000 a coin now. I don't see any reason why they couldn't be 100000 by year end. And for those reasons, price appreciation, diversity, hedge against inflation, evolutionary concept in the way we're going to store value going forward. All of those reasons are the reasons why I'm an investor in Bitcoin. And why why just Bitcoin? Or are you also diversified with other crypto coins? Well, I have no other crypto coins at this moment. That's primarily related to my clients. My clients have had uh, little to no exposure to Bitcoin. They are inexperienced with understanding or in terms of understanding Bitcoin. And so I want to get them up to speed with Bitcoin first. Let me do that. And then once I've done that, we'll roll it into some uh, other coins potentially. So this is just a game of incrementalism. I'm trying to first get clients to recognize the benefits of cryptocurrency. Bitcoin to me is the apex predator. It's the largest coin. It has the largest market capitalization. And so for all those reasons, I'm locked in with Bitcoin. And I want to go back to one of your comments, which is you're recommending all of your clients to hold some Bitcoin, right? And, and in fact, you went on the news recently recommending that more companies or all companies should be holding Bitcoin and crypto. Why do you think that's a good idea? Here's what I would say. If you made a $10,000 investment in Amazon at its IPO and you held it for the last 24 years, that $10,000 turned into $21,140,000. If you didn't see it in 2007, but you saw it 12 years later, and after all, Bitcoin is 12 years old now, uh, and you bought Amazon in 2009, you have a 64 times return on your money. So if you put $10,000 in, it's worth 640,000, put a million in, it's worth 64 million. And I think that this is scaling like Amazon, like Google, like Facebook. And if you study Metcalf's law, what Professor Metcalf was basically saying is, is that you can measure fundamentally what something is worth by the exponential growth of its network. And so Bitcoin is scaling more quickly, frankly, than Amazon. Bitcoin got to a trillion dollars in market capitalization in 12 years. It took Amazon 20 plus. It took Apple and Microsoft 40 plus years to scale. And so all I'm saying to my clients is if we're right, and I believe we will be, uh, have a percentage holding in Bitcoin. Is it a half a percent? Is it 1%? Is it 3%? Now, I've got about 20-ish percent. It's moving around a lot, but let's say 20% of my net worth in Bitcoin. That's because I think I understand it. I have a lot of confidence in it. I have it spread out on my other Skybridge funds, uh, but it's also due to price appreciation. You know, I put a 6% position on, it's gone up three to one. And I'll tell you something that Warren Buffett once said, you don't sell Michael Jordan for four scrubs and call it diversification. And so I think there's a lot more room for Bitcoin. It started literally six months ago as a 5% holding, but now it's closing in on, uh, on 20. And so I like it. I tell people to be responsible. It's a volatile stock, or if you will, a volatile asset. It will move very quickly and it will move dangerously at times. 
But if you're a long-term investor, I think you're going to be rewarded. So as an investor, obviously you're recommending going directly to the source, and that is Bitcoin. But there's a whole ecosystem of enablers, right? So there's companies that are actually providing the tools to go and yeah, I think that that's trade, uh, right? I think that's being too clever by half. I think a lot of people's oh, I missed Amazon. Let me buy Jet.com or let me buy Walmart's new initiative. I think that's being too smart by half. I think you're just better off going with the actual commodity. You know, if you invested in Coinbase or Bitcoin. Coinbase is about to go public, but the returns on Bitcoin from the date of Coinbase's inception are way better than Coinbase. And so I know everyone says, well, let's go with the picks and the shovels. I think that's too smart by half. I don't think you need to do that. I would just go right into Bitcoin. Fair enough. Fair enough. Anthony, I want to go back then to that 11-day period because I'm sure a lot of people got to know you through your appointment and participation in the Trump administration, right? Um, However short it was. So what surprised you the most about uh, politics? And what do you think would surprise our listeners? I think what would probably surprise listeners is that when you go into politics, you have automatic adversaries because there's a half the people don't want the policies that you're proposing. And so what they try to do is they try to demonize each other. So you name the political figure, there's half the people that dislike that figure and half the people will say these non-humane things about people. They try to demonize. And so I experienced that very aggressively. I would say that it taught me a lot because I have a tendency now not to go on what other people are saying about a person, but to meet the person face-to-face because I think there's a very widespread between a perception that can sometimes be created in the media and who the actual person is. Uh, the second thing I would say is that our systems incentives are flawed. You know, we're beating up on each other. We're siloing into our own little tribal special interest groups. We're gerrymandering or cutting our congressional districts in a way to prevent our adversaries from winning those districts. So it's perpetuating these silos of power where they go on for multiple decades, you know, and they stay in Washington forever. And their number one goal is to figure out a way to maintain power as opposed to serving the people. So those were my observations. Having said that, uh, there are good people in Washington, like there are everywhere in the world. And I hope that those good people will ultimately prevail. But at the end of the day, I thought that the Trump administration, particularly Donald Trump himself, represented a threat to the American democracy And I felt it was very important for me to speak out about it. And I'm very proud that I did. Now, you are obviously a relationship builder, right? And a connector. To raise a fund, you need to have strong relationships, your credibility that's on the Mm -hmm. line. Mm -hmm. You are the organizer of SALT, which is a huge conference, of course. Why do you think, you know, that relationship building, a strong suit, didn't work as well in politics? You know, I made a mistake. I think that uh, I trusted somebody that I shouldn't have trusted. I was on the phone with a reporter. I thought I was off the record. He said that I wasn't. He took the recording of what I said. It was actually really funny what I said. I was being very lighthearted. Uh, It got played in the public domain. And I think it was a poor reflection on me and a poor reflection on the president. And at that moment in time, I think General Kelly was trying to restore some semblance of order 
to the White House. So his first official act was to fire me. And what I would tell the young people that listen to your podcast is be accountable for your mistakes. I made a mistake. I should not have trusted that reporter. So sometimes in business, you can trust people and you can make an assumption that they're going to reciprocate and they'll be trustworthy and you can be trustworthy and so forth. But I would say in politics, you probably have to be a lot more careful and perhaps more cynical than I was. And I learned the hard way. But truth be told, it was a phenomenal experience. I got to fly on Air Force One three times. I worked out of the Oval Office with the president for a few days. I traveled with him. Whatever our personal relationship is today, I was there to try to help him. Unfortunately, that became a impossibility. And I, I look back on it fondly. Now, it was humbling uh, the way I got fired. And the way the media portrayed me was also very humbling. And again, another learning lesson. You know, What other people think about you is none of your business. Pick yourself up, dust yourself off, go back to work. And I think it's very important, particularly for entrepreneurs, when they make a mistake as colossal as the mistake I made in Washington, is your number one move is you have to forgive yourself. We're taught, if you're Christian or you're Catholic like I am, you're taught to forgive others. But you have to forgive yourself as an entrepreneur because you can't wake up in the morning and kick yourself in the pants and say, yesterday I did something stupid. Let me kick myself in the pants. Or, you know, four years ago, I was in the White House and I trusted a reporter and they caught me in a situation that made me look bad. And so therefore I got fired. All of that's my fault. I don't blame the reporter. I blame nobody but myself. But I think the number one thing you have to do when you're in a situation like that is to forgive yourself and move on, focus on the front windshield. I always tell my kids, you know, when you're driving, the rear view mirror is approximately 3% of the space volume in front of you. 97% of it is what you're seeing as you're heading into the future. The rear view mirror is 3%. And so, yes, it's important to reflect on your past and to learn from it and try to make corrections. And certainly, it's important for us to have continuity and reminisce about our relationships and even have feelings of nostalgia. But it's way, way more important, perhaps 20 to 1, 25 to 1 more important to focus on the future. How about working with a president? How about working with Trump? Any insights or you know, anything you would like to share about Oh, remember, I worked with him for over a year. It wasn't just while I was in the White House. I had worked on his transition. I'd worked on his campaign. I traveled with him to 71 campaign stops. You know, he was a difficult guy. Ultimately, I would tell you that anybody that had no political need for him, meaning they weren't relying on his opinions for their political survival, or they were not tied to him financially, i.e. political consultants or pundits that were making money off of him or his campaign or the Republican Party. Anybody that had independent wealth or independent thinking or were not tied to him politically uh, had very harsh things to say about him. It wasn't just me. It was General Mattis, General Kelly, Rex Tillerson, John Bolton, anybody that wasn't tied to him. You know, and then what I find one of the real cynical things about Washington is There are people in Washington that feel as negatively about him as I do, and yet they'll praise him in the public domain because they feel that they need to do that for the purposes of political expediency and the purposes of power preservation, their self-preservation. So 
you know, listen, another big mistake by me, I wanted to work in the White House. I wanted to work for the American president. My wife was like, well, the American president's a sociopathic narcissist. You shouldn't go work for him. And yet I chose to overlook that. Okay, so that's a character flaw in my being. I have to own that for the rest of my life. But it is a learning lesson for others. Don't put your pride and ego into your decision-making. I was in my own mind, in my own self-image. My narrative was I was a blue-collar kid, grew up with a blue-collar dad, went to some good schools, made a little bit of money, experienced a part of the American dream. And now I have a chance to work for the American president. That's what was going on in my mind. It wasn't, but the American president's a sociopathic narcissist. I chose to overlook that. That's a mistake. And I paid dearly for that mistake. And by the way, it wasn't just me. You know, there were 90 people that let go and or resigned or were fired from that administration. And I may even be on the low end. I think those are just, that was just the people that were tied directly to the White House. So, but look, you know, look, I tried to do my best. It didn't work out. I've returned to my business with lots of learning lessons and I'm growing, I'm back growing my business. I guess since we're on the topic of mistakes and lessons learned, how about some mistakes and lessons learned on the business side, right? When, when you think back to your years as an entrepreneur and corporate leader, what lessons come to mind? I think the number one lesson, and I think this will likely make sense to you, is adaptability and flexibility. Meaning I could name a thousand mistakes. I probably have two phone books of mistakes since I started my entrepreneurial career. But how do you get out of a bad decision or how do you get out of a mistake? It's through resourcefulness and flexibility. And so if we're not positioned well going into the pandemic and we lose money in March of 2020, what do you do? Well, there's a number of steps you have to take. Number one, you have to recognize that you've got something wrong. Number two, you then have to say, is this a technical breach or is this something more fundamental? And at that time, given some of the nature of the securities we had, it was actually more fundamental for us because commercial office space, residential and suburban shopping centers and suburban offices have been devastated by the pandemic. Residential housing in suburbs have gone up, but the shopping, and the office space, that stuff has been vacant. Some of it has uh, been way undervalued. And so we had to shed commercial banking loans in April of last year in order to avoid an even bigger drop in their value. And so step one, acknowledge you got something going wrong. Step two, be brave enough to correct it. Sometimes people in a crisis, the best thing to do is absolutely nothing and say, okay, you know what? I've got this right. It's a temporary thing. Let me hold everything and it will return back to its true fundamental value or its intrinsic value. In our case, some of it was right. We kept that. In many cases, we actually averaged in. We bought more of it. But in a few cases, we were like, okay, wow, the pandemic has really changed the macro forecast long-term for what working on. Let's move on. And so it's acknowledgement, adaptability, and then courage to execute a new strategy, that's basically what's in my toolkit. That's what I've learned over the time that I've been an entrepreneur. I could take you through many bad trades. I could take you through flawed employment decisions. I could take you through mistakes that we made in trying to get into certain businesses that weren't successful. But all of it comes down to 
having the courage to recognize that these are mistakes and then to press forward. So sounds like courage is rewarded, having courage in business. Well, I think, I think undoubtedly so. I would say not just business, I would say in life. Helen Keller had a great line, and I'll paraphrase it. She said that the construct of security or the construct of certainty, meaning there's no change in your life. Remember, people don't like change, yet they're changing every day. You're a day older. The five-year-old version of you is long gone. You may remember it, and you may have been impacted. The current version of you may be impacted, but that five-year-old version, what you were doing, what you were playing with, who you were socializing with, where you were heading for school, that whole moment is gone. And what Helen Keller said is that it's fictitious and it's an act of superstition to have security or this false sense of security. And that whether we like it or not, living requires experimentation, living requires risk-taking, and living requires trying new things. And that you find that you're in your highest level of enjoyment about life and your highest level of exhilaration when you're doing that. And so I am very proud of that. I really think that I wrote down what I wanted to do when I was a kid. I went out and tried to do it. Some of it worked, some of it didn't, uh, but it's really the journey that I think has been the most rewarding part of it is not necessarily the destination. Anthony, we have maybe 50% of our listeners who are under the age of 30, let's call it 32, 33, right? If you were under that age again, you know, if you were in your, your 20s, Today, right? Not, not going back to your older self, but today. Where do you think you would be looking? You know, I have a 28-year-old son, and he just graduated from Stanford Business School. So I would probably be looking or doing a lot of the things that he's doing. He's in the new economy space. He's in life sciences. He's in technology. Some of it's fintech. Some of it is tech tech, and some of it is accessory tech, where you know, you're monitoring your vital signs or your metabolism for certain things to help you process fat or to stay at the right weight or supplements. So these are the things that he's been working on. He started a fund and he just closed successfully on a $25 million round. He's made some pretty interesting investments. I probably would go in that direction because we were talking about Bitcoin. Technology today allows you to take a small business And if you can scale it through the use of social media, the use of technology, the use of this broadband internet, it can have this huge macroeconomic impact on the world. And it can also lead to a tremendous amount of wealth creation for yourself and your family. Oh, fantastic. And I, I wanted to mention a, a little known fact that was just announced. And you recently became an honorary citizen of an Italian town, a Gualda. Tadino. Is that, is that right? Igualdo de Torino. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's my grandfather's hometown. The mayor contacted me. Uh, <laughs> I thought it was a crank phone call, to be honest. I didn't really <laughs> understand it. And then he brought the interpreter on. And then I have a lot of friends in Italy and they, uh, no, no, no. He's been talking about this. And they had the uh, city council vote me an honorary citizen of the town. And so unfortunately I had to do that over Zoom, but I'm hoping Once I'm completely vaccinated and my wife is completely vaccinated, if it's safe to travel and we're allowed to travel to Italy, I'll go to the town and accept the, the citizenship and the key to the city more formally. But it was a very flattering moment for me. I've tried to stay true to my Italian heritage and my Italian culture. I was raised by my grandparents and my parents, but my grandparents were originally from Italy. 
They absolutely loved this country, but we had the remnants of their past, including the winemaking and the prosciutto making and the pastas and the commitment to family. And so it was a big honor to be named an honorary citizen of that town. Going back full circle. Great. Well, Anthony, thank you for joining us. Before we let you go, we always love to ask a bit about your personal side and you know about maybe some of your favorite hobbies or things you love to do outside of work. Well, I mean, I have kids. So, you know, I love to ski. I love to be outdoors. I like snowshoeing. I love going to the beach. I love the water sports in the summer, which include water skiing. But, you know, when you have children and you get to be my age, you're like, okay, the only thing I really want to do, I want to maximize the quality time that I have with my children. And I always say to my children that I don't believe in this whole separation of quality time versus quantity time. I don't believe in that. I believe in it should all be quantity time. I mean, we should spend as much time and energy as we possibly can with our children. I try to do that. So I would say that that's my number one leisure sport is just hanging out with my kids. Great. Well, Anthony, thank you for joining us. It's great to be on. Thank you. And uh, I got to get you to come to our SALT conference. So hopefully you'll show up. Uh, How how do I do that? Sign me up. Yes. Send me send me another email to remind me. I will. Thank you, Anthony. God bless. Really appreciate this. No, I appreciate you doing it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. 